Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hey, welcome back to our podcast. So glad you're here. Why? Because we do this for those of you who are interested in shifting your perspective. And I'll say this again at the beginning of every episode of our podcast, and this is also the basic theme of our film, that we are not here, we do not exist in order to give tips or coping strategies, mechanisms. We do not believe in that. And I'll get into, you know, more about what that means. We're not here to give you tips and strategies that we think you should try out because then you can cope with ADHD or your child can cope with ADHD for the rest of their lives. That is, first of all, far from the truth of what this so-called disorder actually is and how it can be what we call dissolved or healed. And by healing, we don't mean like there's something wrong, but simply, you know, when you remove friction from the environment and you feel better about the environment in your life, it's almost like you kind of healed that space. I'll get back to that. So we're not here to give tips and strategies. There's plenty of experts and books and worksheets and webinars and all that stuff that you can look up if that's why you came here. Perhaps if you're interested and really open-minded, listen to Coping is Hoping because we get into uh, the difference between coping and thriving. In a nutshell, one cannot thrive when one is coping and you have to choose. Do you want to cope for life? Do you want to shift your perspective, try something different and potentially thrive? That's why we exist, is to shift perspectives around this so-called disorder. So, Welcome to potentially shifting your perspective if you're up for it. If you're not and you've made up your mind that for you and your child or both or your friends and family members, ADHD as a, you know, neurochemical, biological, whatever you want to call it, disorder of the brain, you name it. If that's real for you and your coping strategies, your, your, dealing with it for life strategies work for you and have created fulfilled family lives, then you're fine. There's no need to be on this podcast, literally. So that said, if you're here to potentially have your perspective shifted, you've come to the right place. You truly have come to the right place. Because our commitment is that anyone who has an open mind and wants to do this differently has a chance to listen to our experts or rants or conversations and hopefully will find a for them customized version of what we did in our family to dissolve and make disappear the symptoms of this so-called 
disorder. Today I was inspired to do an episode called No More Pity Parties in Victimhood. It's a nice little, you know, play on words. Why did I get inspired to do this episode? Well, what's interesting is that one of the experts we just interviewed, and I'm excited to release this next week, this coming week, is Peter Gray. He's an amazing human being, an expert on education, on researching education, especially play and education. He's the author of the book, Free to Learn. Highly recommend it to any parent. Peter pointed something out in one of his articles that we've, we were aware of, but it was nice to see someone else pointed out, is that in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, that the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, um, you know, has created over the years. It's sort of the Bible of mental disorder diagnoses. And in, prior to 1973, it's not that long ago if you think about it, right? I was born in 70. I'm 51. So this happened 50 or 49 years ago right, 48 years ago. Prior to 1973, being gay, homosexual, was considered a disorder. Some even called it a disease in the DSM. There was a classification and there were suggested treatments. You can look this up. You can get your hands on a used copy of the DSM on eBay that's what we did. Look it up. Just get the right DSM prior to 73, around there. And Peter Gray mentioned it the same way that we did, by saying, look, at some point in the future, we're going to look back and go, remember that ADHD supposed brain, you know, neurochemical imbalance disorder whatever you want to call it, disorder that we thought was a real thing, and but really it wasn't quite, it was sort of a incomplete narrative, incomplete picture, now we know more. And you may say to yourself, well, <laughs> Roman, you're kind of, uh, you know, not, not really looking at it the right way. You're not honoring that it is a real disorder and that people are suffering and blah, 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 right? And I'll get to that in a moment. My point is, remember when doctors used to promote cigarette smoking and also the chemical DEET that we would spray around neighborhoods was considered safe. And there's many other examples of things that we thought, well, it's completely safe, it's fine. And of course, big business behind it put advertising dollars into it to sell more of their products which, hey, not a conspiracy, it's just business. So, looking back to 1973, when the diagnosis for homosexuality was removed from the DSM, right? We thought, reading about that, we thought, well, how come that happened? Well, pretty simple. 
the minority, homosexuals, basically stood up and said, no more. We're not disordered. It's a sexual orientation. We truly feel like that's our preference, like a man being with a man, woman being with a woman, and so forth, right? They said, no more will you call us disordered. So what's our point? The reason why I wanted to write about victim, no more pity parties and victimhood is because I thought, well, how come ADHDers, as they're so often called, haven't stood up and said, bullshit, no more calling us disordered. We're not. We're a minority, although ADHD diagnoses are you know, climbing, the numbers are climbing rapidly. So uh, hopefully you could say in 20 years from now, the tipping point might have actually been reached that more than 50% of the population has what's called ADHD. And so it's no longer a minority. But for now, you know, let's call it a minority. How come that minority is not standing up, rallying with demonstrations in the street, with online petitions and so forth, or with this cancel culture hunger that we have in this society nowadays? How come, I thought to myself, how come that's not happening? How come people with ADHD have sort of accepted the fact that, well, it is a disorder. We do have it. And so as we started digging deeper, we thought, well, okay, there is definitely a difference because, you know, there are people that have uh, accepted the diagnoses and therefore the label and also the medications that come with it. Not everybody takes medications. I, I get that. You know, and, and that's become their identity. That's one right? Because they can tell each other, oh, I have ADHD. Oh, me too. Oh, you're an ADHD. Or, okay, cool. What meds are you taking? Oh, yeah. What do you struggle with? You know, it becomes sort of an identity that you get used to. And then we thought, well, what else? Well, there's the shorthand, right? That doctors or, or psychiatric, psycho psychological professionals, therapists have when they say, oh, my, my client, my patient has ADHD. You don't have to explain for an hour what you think they have. You just say, ADHD and somebody goes, oh, I get it, right? So there's a shorthand. There's a medical or psychiatric shorthand where you can identify uh, a patient's uh, disorder or the diagnosis, right? And then there's also the America, American medical insurance kind of um, shorthand or code, right? Beyond that, though, um, as Peter Gray also pointed out in a very nuanced way, which I really appreciated. My wife and I were listening and we really got something new there when he said, look, the reason why lots of parents are, you know, or the reason why this diagnosis exists is because the insurance company says, look, we're going to pay for your meds for your child, but you need a diagnosis. So parents, especially if you're low income or you don't have the means or, you know, single mother, single father, whatever, divorced and so forth and you struggle and your child keeps you know the principal keeps calling and you got to go into meetings and you just you, you just can't take it anymore right understandable it's a lot of friction 
to deal with that. So at that point, you need a diagnosis to get the meds for your insurance to cover it, right? So there's a, there's a whole system there. This is not a conspiracy. That's just how it works. If this triggers anyone listening, again, I'll say it again. It's not a conspiracy. That's how the system works, right? And yet again, we're not anti-system. We're not anti-meds. We're pro having a conversation around a complete narrative, not just an one-sided, what we call an incomplete narrative. So that, that's another reason why one would say, well, I do want to be labeled with ADHD because then I can get the meds that I need or I think I need or they say I need, right? And my insurance covers it. So there's a whole system in place, right? So these are, these are examples of why somebody would want to own the label and, and identify as an ADHDer. Now, here's the thing. The only problem that I see with that is that someone with ADHD who accepts the label, identifies with it, will easily be triggered and offended when anyone questions the validity of this so-called disorder called ADHD. And what happens a lot is that there is a, what I call a, a nuanced mistake of listening. So when we first started announcing our project, ADHD is over, we would get a lot of experts that we reached out to in the opposite camp who would say, if you're saying that ADHD is, is not real, then you're foolish. And we would always write back and say, nope, that is not what we're saying. First of all, we're saying for our family, it's over. And the film and the movement is around, if you're interested for ADHD to be dissolved in your life and you're interested to thrive and not just cope for life, because you're told to do so, that that's your only option, then ADHD can be over just like alcoholism can be over. Any of these, what we call diseases or disorders that we have been told that are genetic, which is, by the way, not true, not founded in fully explored studies, only cherry-picked. So therefore, you know, if we are actually interested in thriving, not in coping, we have to be open to the fact that ADHD can be over for us. So these experts would write back and what they would hear in the title ADHD is over is they would hear ADHD is not real. So we recently have added a sort of a subheader on our website that says the struggle is real. The label doesn't have to be. What do we mean by that? Well, we're not saying people aren't struggling with certain aspects of their lives, that they're experiencing friction at school, at work, in families, in relationships, et cetera, executive functioning, all that stuff. We're not saying that's not real. That's very real. I can see it in our family. I can see it in my own life, my friends' lives. It's real. But the label doesn't have to be. 
And this is where I actually challenge anyone listening who says, well, I, I disagree. Da, 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 da. It's like, tell me why for you, the label has to be real and it has to stay in place. What are the benefits? Now you could say, well, I need the label so I can get my meds and pay for them. Okay, but that's not proof that ADHD is real. The label, the diagnosis, that just means you want to get meds because they do help you. You want your insurance to pay for it, so you need that label. I get that. But what I want to hear from people is like, why, what, what, what did you get by identifying as someone with ADHD? If the answer is treatment, again, that's not what I'm talking about. I get that. That's part of a system. That's part of a setup that helps you cope. I'm looking at the, the, the thrive side of life. What are you getting? And here's what I came up with. Now, please, if you disagree and you have a really great argument, I'm open. We're very open. As a matter of fact, we're more open than the experts that tell us, nope, I don't want to have a conversation. You guys are foolish. One expert recently said what you guys are doing is shameful and harmful. Well, please talk to me about it. I want to get to know your point of view. But if you're not open to discuss both sides with an adult common sense and a committed, a willingness to actually have ADHD disappear, because wouldn't that be great? Because if we're really committed to helping our children and our society move forward, wouldn't it be great if we all were committed to making it disappear? Why would we want to hang on to it? Why? Anyway, that's a different episode. But so some of the experts have said that. And I say, look, I'm open to have a conversation. If you can really tell me what benefits are you getting other than the systematic kind of coverage or treatment that you think is necessary, but it might be for a while, I'm not saying it's not. But other than that, what's the benefit? And here's what, what I think it is. And this will trigger a lot of people. And when I first discovered this concept, um, doing transformational work at Landmark, I was triggered. And the concept is called a payoff. When you keep something in place in your life that you know is not ideal, it's not contributing to thriving, maybe at best coping, but oftentimes actually causing more friction in life. And so why are we hanging on to something like that? We get a payoff is the answer. So it's very important to look at when we keep something in place in our lives that we know is not beneficial to us or the people in our lives, but yet we hang on to it, it's very important to know what's the payoff. What are we getting in return for hanging on to it that actually tickles us. It gives us something. We know it's not beneficial. I'll give you an example because I don't want to keep talking about the concept, not give an example, right? Here's an example. In this case, and I'm going to bring it right to ADHD. If the payoff you're getting by identifying yourself as someone with ADHD is perhaps to be late here and there and say, well, it's my ADHD. Sorry. 
or to go, I, you know, I lost this piece of paper. I, I know I told you I would bring it. I just, you know, my ADHD or, well, I got to take meds and, you know, I, I have ADHD. Like those are payoffs. And the big one I think is to be a victim. And, and that's the triggering part, right? When I back then discovered this concept of like, well, whenever, whenever I want people to kind of feel bad for, for me or, you know, understand, well, I guess you can't function at 100% because you're dealing with something, that's victimhood. Not a bad thing. Please hear me again. That's not a bad thing. It's okay. It's just not very empowering, right? So when people come up to me, and this happened a bunch of times on Facebook, interacting with people after we've made some, you know, challenging, maybe perhaps triggering posts, which I'm aware of, um, that helps us to really steer up the conversation and have a new conversation. So people would come up to us and go, well, F you, you're saying this is not real? And again, you know, my wife and I would be like, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. There are books that say ADHD is not real. You know, that that's not that's not what we chose. We chose ADHD is over because we say so for our family, right? And of course, it's slightly, uh, you know, provocative in a title. I mean, look, most films that you know in they want to sort of get through the clutter of of content nowadays. You know, you have to choose a. a a slightly provocative title to get people to stop. So we're not denying that we didn't, that part of it isn't that. But this was more of an homage to John Lennon and Yoko Ono's uh, The War Is Over, if you like it, right? And, and so you can look that up. It's a really cool campaign they did in the 60s. And um, it was is an homage because, look, war can be over if we like. If we want it to be over, it can be over. But it's, it's not in our interest. Again, we get a payoff. People get a payoff. And I don't want to get into the whole war payoff. There's many levels of that, right? The whole war machine, but there's also the political payoff. There's, you know, being able to say, see, humanity is bad and there's war. It's like, there's many payoffs. Around ADHD, however, the payoff is very personal. And yes, there's big pharma and psychiatrists and there's many interest groups that have started, you know, a coping mechanism, coping strategy, uh, workshops and books and, and platforms and webinars. And, uh, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists have created their own methodology on how to treat ADHD. And it's called this method and that technology and this FDA approved device and, and so forth. And again, we are here to say those are all great, but they're coping mechanisms and they're treating the symptoms. They're not looking under the hood. They're looking at the check engine light of the car and then they get out of the car and they look at the paint job and they go, it looks good. If we just polish it a little bit and if we just buff out this scratch and that, it's fine, I'm sure. And then they'll stick a piece of tape over the check engine light saying, you know what? nothing wrong with the car, but the light keeps coming on. It's probably a mistake. Let's just put a tape over it. Tape being medication in our theory. But no one's looking under the hood. Well, not no one. 
take that back. Most experts are not willing to look under the hood because they've been sold a narrative that there's this disorder that just appears in certain kids. They're just sort of born broken. And I don't want to get too much into the myths of ADHD in terms of it's genetic, it's neurochemical, it's a disorder. All these things in our film will be, I hate to use the word debunked, but we're going to look at the incompletion of the narrative. So parents have the full picture. So anyway, you know, those experts that are not willing to look under the hood are actually doing more damage than those of us who are saying, can we look under the hood? By saying, this is an incomplete picture. You know, the problem is that the demographic that has identified itself as ADHDers are not realizing that they're not being told the complete narrative. Therefore, they are not rebelling against the diagnosis. They're not rebelling like in 73, you know, the demographic of homosexuals who said, no more, this is bullshit, has to be out of the DSM. This is not a disorder. This is a sexual orientation. For lack of a better term, I'm not an expert in that area, but they just said, look, this is, we're not disordered. And my wife and I were thinking, how come that the people that have been labeled or, or diagnosed with ADHD don't have the same amount of passion or even frustration or anger with that label. And the answer, again, I'm pretty convinced is twofold. A, it's such an intricate web of a system with the medical insurance and psychiatry and education and medication. It's hard to untangle it and go, wait a minute. You're, you're selling me as disordered, as a broken person. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, hold on a minute. And really get in touch with themselves and go, I'm not disordered. I might be different. My brain works differently. I do want to get some help. I do want to do some things that can help me pull the friction you know, out between me and the environment. Yes, of course. I do want to thrive. Right? So that's one side. The other side simply is that I think people have become victims. And there's a payoff. They get pity. Or they get away with certain things. Or they get to be, quote-unquote, not responsible for their own lives. I know that's a mouthful and that's, that's hard to hear and that can be very triggering. Trust me. I've been there. But when we take full responsibility for our lives, when we say, well, I got these symptoms that seem to come up at school or in my workplace or whatever, I got to look deeper into why I do these things. Why do I react? The word here is react. Why is my nervous system on alert, high alert all the time? Why do I seem not to have you know, control over my impulses? All these things can be rewired. We can rewire our brain. There's many books out there around neuroplasticity. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Bruce Lipton in April. I'm really excited about that. There's many 
experts out there, there's science out there clearly shows that we can rewire our brain at any age. Sure, it's going to be a little harder when you're 80 versus when you're 14. But the point, the keyword is plasticity. You know, I recently started uh, playing the guitar. I have a, I have a guitar uh, teacher who I Zoom with. And at first, it was very hard to, to learn these new uh, finger moves or these new uh, things that I have to do to play the guitar. But the point is that when we create these new habits, the brain adjusts, the brain learns, the brain gets into a new um, mode and goes, okay, this is what we're now doing. And suddenly, the fingers do it. And the whole point here is that my brain, your brain, our brains can rewire themselves. Yet we've been sold the incomplete narrative that for some reason in the case of ADHD, that's not possible. The brain is the way the, 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 way the brain is, right? My favorite one is, is this uh, you know, chemical imbalance in the brain. It's just a load of bullshit, guys. Don't buy it. Here's, here's what it actually, here's what it's like. Imagine you and I are going for a walk and out of nowhere, I suddenly pretend to punch you in the face with my fist. The moment that fist comes at you, you're going to go into full defense mode, alert, right? Fear, fight or flight or whatever your mechanism is. And... At that moment, imagine that fist is coming at your, towards your face and we freeze frame and we look at your fearful face thinking, what the fuck? Why are you about to punch me? Right? That split second. And we freeze there and we take a brain scan at that moment and we take a brain scan before I do that right when the fist is by your face. And then an hour later, when I've explained to you that it was just a test and you're all laughing and you're like, oh, God damn it, you tricked me, blah, 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 whatever. The point is you take a brain scan before, during, and after. Of course, those scans are going to look different. Of course, in the moment when you're about to get punched, the balance of your chemicals in the brain is different than before and after. What's my point? Tell me, Roman, what, what is your point? The point is very simple. There's always going to be chemical imbalances in the brain. It just depends what's happening to the brain, and it depends when we take a snapshot of those chemicals. And I've heard it before where experts will say, well, a ADHD brain looks different than a non-ADHD brain. Uh, yeah, my brain also looks different than a 14-year-old's brain, or my brain looks different than a same-age male doing bungee jumping while I'm just sitting here podcasting. Yes, they do look different. My point is not that, you know, I'm not to say that, that these brains don't look different. They do. But why is the big question? Why and when? And that's what we disregard when these theories are thrown around by experts and, and scientists, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to box, 
you know, define, that's what we, as human beings, we, we are so addicted to having to box things in and label them and go, okay, this happened, that happened. Okay. What does it mean? Science comes in and goes like, well, we're going to do tests. We're going to figure out, we're going to, we're going to put it in a box. Don't worry. Right. We're so conditioned to do that. So I understand our need to do that. The problem is if we're not giving parents in this case, the full picture around any of these scientific studies, because a lot of them are cherry picked, then we're doing it disservice to our children because they're the ones that end up thinking that there's something wrong with them. That's already a, a concept that we can't, that's not a, a conspiracy. Kids actually do feel there's something wrong with them, that they're abnormal, that they're broken. There's tons of research on that. So again, back to this, this uh, taking snapshots, right? This chemical imbalance. If you look at these theories, and experts will go crazy. They will say, Roman, you're not an expert. You don't understand. You have no idea. It's clearly been scientifically proven. It has not. Yes, there's studies out there that have been paid for by interest groups that say, oh, look, this brain looks different than that brain. Yes, but when has that shot been taken? For example, I just want to go back to a, a hypothesis that we have, and this is what we're working with, is that you know, and based on a 1990s ACE study by the CDC and the Kaiser Permanente, it was proven that children who've had lots of traumatic experiences, they're called adverse childhood experiences, hence ACE. Children with one or two more ACEs were more likely to get AD, diagnosed with ADHD than children without. Hence, and there's a great TED Talk, if you listen to Nadine Burke Harris's TED Talk on the ACE study, hence, we basically found out that stress and trauma on the human nervous system causes that system to go into high alert. And the prefrontal cortex cannot process trauma or stress and learn at the same time. It can only do one thing at a time. And so hence, school children who are not paying attention, usually they're preoccupied with something. And in most cases... And, and for me, it's almost 99% of the time when I talk to someone I meet who has ADHD, you know, an adult quickly tells me about their trauma in their lives, that their parents were divorced or drug users, or there was sexual abuse, physical abuse, and so forth. And Nadine Burke Harris, who's now the, uh, the Surgeon General of California, also found the same, that trauma and stress has a significant impact and therefore potentially could be the cause for these so-called mental disorders, not just ADHD, right? Could be others like dyslexia or even anorexia or, or, or you know, anxiety, depression, ODD, and so forth. And one of the trauma experts, one of the trauma experts in the world, Peter A. Levine, also said that there's a huge overlap between the symptoms of, of trauma and ADHD. If you look at the overlap, it's staggering. It's almost the same symptoms. Yet, no one looks at that because that's under the hood kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff where we have to take responsibility for our lives. Parents have to take responsibility for perhaps transgenerational trauma or parenting patterns that are not effective, that cause more friction 
uh, in the family, right, around education, around the family structure and so forth, we would have to take responsibility for it, which means own it. It's there. What if it had something to do with it? Yet that's not, that's not going to be beneficial for the psychiatric uh, association or big pharma because it's a system. It's a system that's already set up. It's almost systematic mental diagnosis. You know, it's, it's, it's there, therefore kids fall into it. They get sucked up into it. So back to my point, I know we've gone in many circles, but the incomplete narrative is simple. When the check engine light comes on in a car, it makes sense for the mechanic to look under the hood, right? But in this case, children are like the check engine lights of the family. They point out when something is not working for them. Here's the problem. We then go, the child is the problem. That little annoying check engine light, we just need to reset it, reset it, make it go off. I don't want anything to be wrong with the car. Car looks fine. Car should be fine. That's the problem. That's what makes the children the problem versus them simply pointing out what's not working in a family. And families go to work on reducing that friction in all areas of that family. And that's what our family has been hard at work. And it's a lifelong process. We're never going to be done. But lots of friction has been removed, especially between our oldest son and his environment, and education, and so forth. It's, it's just so evident that when we shift that perspective, and that's why I said at the beginning of this, we're here to shift perspectives, not to give you tips and strategies on how to cope. We're not interested in coping. Coping truly is hoping. Coping is almost giving up and, you know, owning that, something is wrong with you or your child for life. So let's just cope the best we can. That's not a thriving family. That's not a life I want to live. I want to thrive. And thriving takes work. But the work is right in front of us. It's just looking under the hood and asking questions like, what potentially could be the friction? Even if the friction is Child's at the wrong school. Yeah, but it's such a good school that leads to the Ivy League feeding track bullshit. What I, you know, stop, stop for a moment and ask yourself, is that really the right school for your child? Or do you think your child should be going to that school because it's the right school to lead to the best next school, to the best next school, to the best degree, to the most money, to the most, what you think is success? And if we stop there and we actually open up to allowing our children to unfold, now we're really looking under the hood. Now, this is really, really triggering and challenging. Lots of the experts out there who will do anything to sell you, the parent, on the fact that there's something not right with your child and the only way to do this is to label them with a disorder and then to medicate or to have lifelong coping strategies. That's literally what the other side is selling. And it's been so interesting to see that most of these experts are not willing to come on our podcast or not willing to have a conversation are not willing to be in the documentary because they're afraid 
that we're going to question them. And here's the, here's the interesting part. They're the experts, right? I'm a filmmaker. I'm a father. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm interested in their expert opinion, but I will challenge them to be open to the other side. And I have a feeling they're just not open to that side. Therefore, they don't want to, quote unquote, in their own words, waste their time because they're the experts. They don't want to come on the show and talk to someone who's talking nonsense like this last expert that we heard from that said what we do is shameful and potentially dangerous. Harmful was the word. Sorry, shameful and harmful. Well, shameful, I'd love to hear about that. Harmful, I do understand what they mean. They're afraid that some parent will listen to this podcast and go, oh, so my child doesn't have a disorder, so I don't have to do anything, which is exactly not what we're promoting. As a matter of fact, if you go the non-medication route and the non-label route, it's actually a lot more to do. You know, that's the bad news. There is a lot of work ahead. The good news is, it's without medication and without coping for life. And it's actually going to lead to a more thriving family once you head down that path. That's our claim. We've done it. We're living it right now. And it's amazing. So that's actually what they mean, though, when they say what we're doing is harmful. Another issue I have with that statement is that that is speaking to ADHDers or the parents of ADHDers as incapable, not possible of being responsible for their own lives kind of people. And that's not who we are. That's not who you are. I mean, how dare you tell me or anyone that I'm not mature or intelligent enough to make my own choices? Now, hey, there might be people out there that we would consider you know, stupid and they do reckless things, but that's going to happen, period. Who are you, expert, to try to protect every single human being on the planet for making their own mistakes and learning from it? Who are we to say that? There's always going to be people who will go too far. So what? That's part of being human. But to call us harmful, to me, telegraphs, a bit their self-imposed, self-proclaimed authority that they know what's best for anyone with ADHD. And if anyone questions their point of view, then that's a harmful thing because something will happen to some parent or some child who will just think that they're fine, but they're not. I mean, come on, please. Let's talk to children like they're actually human beings, like they're, you know, intelligent souls, if we just let them unfold, right, with guidance, and that's where the parents come in. And all we're doing is we're giving a complete narrative. I don't have to bring on the experts here that believe in medication and believe there's something wrong with children and they have a disorder. That's already out there. YouTube and Google it. Just put in ADHD in YouTube and Google and you will get plenty of that side. We don't want to spend time and energy with that. It's out there. What we do want to do is add the other part of the narrative, the second, the flip side, the other side, right? The yin and yang of the story. So parents have both sides 
and then they can truly make an educated decision. That is not harmful. That is giving the other side. Now, here's the thing. When someone calls us what we're doing shameful, you know, I smile because what does that mean? Shameful. Is it like my mom telling me that I did something wrong and I should be ashamed of myself for doing what? Something that you think is wrong? You know, again, it's this self-imposed, self-proclaimed authority that anyone that does anything that's not aligned with what these experts think, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Well, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of what I'm doing. I'm actually very inspired by what I'm doing because I, on a daily basis almost, hear from people who love what we're doing, who feel empowered, who are like, oh my God, for the first time in life, I felt like there's nothing wrong with me. We heard this the other day from an adult who was about, I think, 37, who said for the first time after watching one of her videos, it was a teaser of her upcoming documentary, said, I cried. I, I've, never, I've never felt this empowered before. This is a 12-minute video we've done, you know, that's out of the hour and a half that's about to be released at the end of this year. It brought tears to my eyes. That's an empowered human being based on seeing the other side. Because trust me, dear experts on the righteous, pro-medication, pro, uh, you know, uh, coping, pro it's for life, pro it's a, a chemical imbalance, genetic disorder, they've heard your tune. They hear it all the time and it's not empowering them. As a matter of fact, it's creating a lot of victims and a lot of people who are dependent on not just medication, that's it is what it is, but truly creates dependent adults who in the future won't know how to trust their own intuition. Why? I say this before. You've heard me say this before. The way you calibrate your intuition is by being, quote unquote, impulsive. Now, there's a scale of impulsivity, right? Because you can be inhibited or you can be impulsive, and you can be on that spectrum, you can be very inhibited, or you can be very impulsive. Now, even impulsivity itself, the word, is not a bad thing. Now, we've created it as a bad thing. Oh, he's so impulsive. Impulsivity simply means you're following an impulse, you're acting upon an impulse. That impulse could be good or bad, right? As parents, we're sort of raising our children, we're, we're trying to tell them that when you have an impulse to run out into the street after the ball, that's not a good idea because if a car comes, you could die, right? But that's our job as parents. We're like the guardrails. And that's okay. But I think when we start to just throw out the baby with the bathwater, when we say any impulsivity is bad, or just the word impulsivity, it's just bad, we're missing the point. We're actually creating human beings that are not learning on their own. They're like, it's almost like crutches. Or, or wheelchairs for someone who's actually not um, disabled or doesn't have an injury. But we go, yeah, yeah just, just use crutches because what if something does happen, then, then at least you can keep walking, right? That's how we're raising our kids. And it brings to mind a very sad example that one of the top ADHD experts, Russell Barkley, 
used in one of his talks in his, his speeches where he compared people with ADHD to people in wheelchairs and he compares medication and, and, you know, coping strategies to wheelchair ramps. And he says, these beings are disabled and they need ramps to get into buildings. And I was like blown away. I was like, did he, he didn't just, what, what? But again, you know, it's such a beautiful example of how they, the self-proclaimed authority, see people who have these symptoms, who struggle in life due to their nervous system being on high alert, due to them, you know, dealing with childhood stress, trauma, and transgenerational parenting patterns that do not work. And we see them, quote unquote, act out. We see the symptoms and then we label it as a disorder. But I'm telling you, I'm here to say, we've interviewed hundreds of people in the last six years. And it never fails that a person who has a good amount of friction in their lives, who, who's been um, diagnosed with ADHD, they can all point to stresses and traumas in their childhood that had them feel like they didn't matter, nobody loved them, they ended up, even though they were medicated, later self-medicating with drugs, alcohol, lots of times suicidal. You can listen to many of the stories on this podcast. Listen to, you know, Kelly turned out, Adrian turned out. It's our series of adults that look back they realized that what actually happened to them when they got diagnosed, labeled, and medicated was not a good idea. Actually led to worse lives. And in contrary to what they say out there that, you know, children with ADHD that are unmedicated actually will self-medicate later in life, it's been disproven. That it's actually children who are medicated, who now are dependent, who believe that they do need a pharmaceutical drug so they can function in life later, you know, more likely will reach out to other crutches, meaning other drugs and other stimulants to function. And often they're so dependent on them that when they come off of them, they have no fucking idea what to do and who they are because they've been using these crutches. It's like if you're, you know, walking around with crutches all your life, and at some point, somebody takes them away. And even if your legs work, you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I've, I, I think I need my crutches because that's my identity now. I've always walked like this. I now have shoes that work with crutches, my pants. Like, you've created a, a, an environment around it that now makes you believe that that's what you need. That's called dependency. And look... I want to make this clear. We're not anti-meds. There's a time for medication. There's maybe a time when a mother needs to use medication because she needs their child to graduate so they can save up more money, move, go to a better school, a better town, have a better life. Fine. What we have an issue with is when medication is hailed as the most effective or the only real effective treatment for ADHD and that it's for life and that... Uh, uh, not medicating kids will give them w worse lives, worse futures. And that's just not, that's not true. 
There was a 30-year study on Ritalin that um, um, Nadine Lambert at Berkeley did. And unfortunately, right before she could publish the findings, she had a car accident and passed away. The study was never published. And uh, we had actually reached out to Berkeley to ask for to see the study, get a copy of it. And we were told that uh, a few years ago when the department moved into a new building that uh, those studies must have gotten shredded. A little odd. But, you know, we don't go down those conspiracy rabbit holes. That's not what our, our movement is about. But the point is there's a 30-year study that was conducted by a uh, leading researcher at Berkeley, at the time the head of the department, of psychology, I believe, Nadine Lambert, that actually proved she followed, I think it was 700-something kids, you know, for 30 years into their adulthood, and that it was actually the opposite, that because they were on Ritalin, they were more likely to end up smoking, drinking, and abusing drugs than the kids who were unmedicated for ADHD. So there's the debunking of, yet again, a one-sided narrative, right? It's the same with, oh, you know, people end up in jail because they have ADHD. A lot of them in jail have ADHD. So ADHD, you know, if you don't treat it well, you end up in jail. No, people end up in jail because they have traumatic upbringings. There is zero doubt. You can, you can come at me with everything you got trying to say that's not true, Roman. That is 100%, if not 110% true, that people who end up in jail are not in jail because they have ADHD. They are in jail because they had traumatic childhoods. And guess what? Trauma and stress in a child's early years causes mental disorders, including ADHD. So yes, they might be in jail and have ADHD, but that's not why they ended up there. That is not the cause for them getting on the wrong track to end up in jail. So parents, if you hear any teacher, administrator tell you that, oh, if you don't medicate your kids, they're going to end up using drugs and getting divorces and car wrecks in jail, that's the incomplete narrative we're talking about. It's true that some People who have ADHD have gotten into car accidents and are in divorces and, and ended up in jail, but it's not because of the ADHD, it's because of traumatic and stressful events that were never processed and healed in the psyche, in the nervous system, that also has them show symptoms of ADHD and therefore then get the ADHD gets blamed for that outcome and it's not true. This is not scientifically backed up. And it enrages me every time I hear that because it's just, it, you know, you look at these, you know, Ivy League educated experts. It's almost like they're starting a sentence and they're not finishing it. And they're the experts. And I always look at them and I go like, okay, I get it. But have you looked at this? Well, that's not true. Well, can we discuss it? No, you're, you know... <laughs> You should be ashamed and you're harmful. No, can we discuss? No. Okay, well, then we can't have an adult conversation around the incomplete narrative that you keep peddling for some reason, whether it's money incentives, whether it's your life's work of 
being a psychiatrist or psychologist, you know, you don't want to question it because it would sort of the house of cards would come down. Like we got to have those conversations without those conversations. I'm sorry to say we are continuing to diagnose and medicate children for a so-called disorder, mental disorder, when in fact we're simply not willing to take responsibility for the fact that it's on our watch that that, those fric that friction is there. That children are struggling with, with school, with you know home life and so forth, their confidence because of what we're allowing to be in their environment. It's a simple way to say, you know, there's that famous saying where pharmaceutical companies started um, telling parents on television, don't worry, it's not bad parenting. And man, makes my skin crawl because I see what they're doing. Yes, ADHD is not due to bad parenting. But the trauma and stress in the environment of a family is the responsibility of the parents. So no, it's not due to bad parenting, but it's actually due to irresponsible parenting. And not irresponsible like it's a bad thing, just like we're not willing to take responsibility. And often it's because media, the medical uh, right industry, and all, all these outside forces have told us that don't worry, there's nothing you can do. It's genetic. It's and a chemical imbalance, it, just, it's not your fault. So we're getting enrolled, we're getting told that it's not our fault. So then you go, well, then uh, there's nothing I can do. So it's not really me. It's not due to bad parenting. So it's something with a child. That is baloney. Baloney, I'm here to say. If you intuitively agree that there's more to that, than what they're saying, then you've come to the right podcast. You're part of the right movement. Because as long as I live, I will stand for this narrative to be complete, not one-sided, not incomplete, but I want parents to know both sides. And like we always say, we're here to shift perspectives. Because once you shift the perspective that your child is not the problem, you can go on to step two, which is where the real work starts, which is heal your shit. Take parenting lessons. Change the diet. Perhaps change the school. Move out of town. Remedy or heal your relationship with your ex if you're divorced or separated. If you're in a stagnant marriage, if you're roommates, you know, dig into that relationship. Make that thrive. If you get irritated or pissed or you're angry or vocal or abusive as a parent, heal that. Where's that coming from? That's called taking responsibility for removing friction in every area of your family. Do that work. That's number two. Heal your shit. Then you can honor your child. What do they like? If they don't like this school, find a school that they love. Why not? It's your child. Why do you want friction? Why do you want to force your child to learn a certain way when that's not the way they learn? Get to know how your child learns. Get to know what type of character personality your child is. Are they very sensitive? Okay, you have a sensitive child. Work with that. Don't make that wrong. 
don't call that ADHD or ODD or, or anxiety or, you know, depression. Children aren't depressed or anxious for no reason. Why? Because, they, oh, they, he's got depression. Like it's some, some weird bump on their brain. Anxiety. Oh, he's so anxious all the time. Really? Well, get interested. How come your child is anxious? There is a reason for it always. Listen to them. Don't listen to them like adults. Because when a child says, you never do this, my reaction, and I catch myself often in that moment, I want to be like, that is not true, son. You use the word always. That would mean every single time. And I have proof that I didn't do. No, that's like arguing me as a 51-year-old with another 51-year-old. No, it's a child. When they say you always, it means in their reality, it shows up that a lot of times you don't do X and they have, there's truth there. Find the nugget of truth. Son, what are you, what are you telling me? Like, please, I want to improve our relationship. So please let me know what you mean by you always do this or you never do this, right? That's the work, my dear friends. That's the work my wife and I are doing. That's the work a lot of friends we have are doing with their children. They're unschooling or homeschooling or whatever schooling works for them. And, you know, we have a large community of parents that are taking conscious parenting classes. I'm in a 28-week workshop right now learning how to become a better parent. We got to do the work. This isn't some autopilot version of life that you get to live and then just slap labels and medication on your children. No, it's on us. When my son has depression or anxiety, that's on me. It's not my fault or for me to be blamed but it's my responsibility. I'm the parent. It's in my life. It's in front of my face. To be irresponsible would be to say, oh, that's his problem. He's got a disorder. That's being irresponsible. That's literally the definition of being irresponsible. Because when we shift our perspective that our children are not the problem, on the flip side of that, we got to step it up and be responsible. I'm going to leave that here. Because the circle has closed. When there's no more pity parties and victimhood, we get to be responsible. We get to say everything that happens in my life in front of me, that's in my space, I manifested it. It's here. If you don't want to go spiritual on it and you don't believe in everything in your life, you manifested, fine. But at least work with me by, by acknowledging that it's in front of you. It's it's in your life right now, kind of like a flat tire, right? You have a flat tire and it's like, boom, here's a flat tire. You can either fight it, bitch about it, blame someone else, but you still have a flat tire. So if something is in your life in front of you, you could be responsible by taking care of it powerfully. And if the moment we make the child the problem, we're being irresponsible or not responsible. I hate to say irresponsible because it sounds like a blame I get that. But we're not responding powerfully. And once we go to outside sources like medication or psychiatrists or coping strategies, we're now making that child dependent on outside sources to function in the world. The problem with that is when your child's going to grow up, it's going to be that kind of adult that you go to lunch with. And you've heard me say this before. And everybody's ordering and your child looks at their friends and goes like, what are you, what are you getting? I'm, I'm not sure what I'm, are you getting the salad or do you think, or maybe, I don't know, should I get a pasta? What do you think? What's good? 
And then they ask the waiter, do you think, is, is, uh, you, do you like the beef better than the, the, the shrimp? And the waiter goes, oh, definitely beef. Now, I get why that people do that. But unless you know that waiter, unless you know his preferences, unless you know exactly how they value beef or meat versus seafood, it's a totally irrelevant question and answer. Because if you can't trust yourself to pick the right thing for you at any given moment in life, you are being dependent on someone else or something else. Not a bad thing, but not very empowering. The moment you can get quiet, listen to your intuition, which again, you can only calibrate by being impulsive, by learning through mistakes. And you listen and you choose powerfully and you say, I'm going to get the beef because it feels right. Now you have a confident, fully centered being who can make his or her own choices in life. And if it's the wrong choice, who will handle it responsibly and powerfully? And they will slightly adjust, calibrate their intuition, their gut feeling, we call it. And now it's even more tuned for the next experience and the next experience and the next experience. And that's a powerful, centered, confident human being. I want my kids to be that kind of human being because they will withstand the test of anything in the future. AI, job markets that are changing, relationships are changing, the world's changing. My kids will be fine. They will be fine because I'm committed to raising children that are self-sufficient, that are centered, grounded, confident, that can be impulsive and adjust at a moment's notice, pick up a new skill and go, move to another country, make new friends, right? That's what I'm committed to. That's why we do this work. So that parents get to see their children for the unique beings that they are. Parents get to aid them, not mold them, but to help them unfold, to become the human being that, that they came here to be, to go through this life, to, to have this type of lesson or karmic if you're down for some spiritual viewpoints on this you know their karmic lesson this one life on this planet right now they get to actually be who they are not who we want them to be who we think they should be doesn't that make sense i'm up for that conversation and if you are too Please come back, listen to more podcasts or go to our website, ADHDsover.com. Sign up for updates on the documentary, on the podcast and more. There's going to be a book coming out as well, probably early to mid 2022 of the same name. The three easy steps to thrive as a family. Now easy is crossed out because it's not easy. It's work. But man, is it fulfilling work. So thank you for your time and your attention we don't take this lightly. Attention truly is the gold that we all have, which is why we sometimes say, pay attention, because it truly is like a currency that we can give. And you've given it gracefully if you've uh, stayed this long and listened to this long rant. And if you like what you hear, feel free to share it, pass it on. 
We have listeners in almost everywhere in the world, which warms my heart. This goes out to all of you. You're all beautiful, individual, unique beings. We're all different. We're all trying to figure out how to thrive. And if we can pass this on to our children to not cope with life, but to thrive in life, to jump in fully with passion, with integrity, with fun, with laughter, with love, we will have not a better world, but we will have a thriving world, which is what I'm interested in. There's always going to be ups and downs. But having the right tools to continue striving and thriving in life and to live a fulfilled, centered life, that's worth it, isn't it? So thank you for listening to ADHD is Over. This episode is called No More Pity Parties in Victimhood. Responsibility is for all of us. And it's the axis to a thriving, powerful life. Have a great day wherever you're at, day or night. Much love. Create an amazing life. Will you? Until next time.